Attention, please. Places for top of show. Places for top of show. Hello, and welcome to Twins Talk Theater. We are Cindy and Stacy, and we're talking about theater, backstage life, and all the excitement that the audience doesn't get to see. Enjoy the show. Welcome to this week's podcast. This week, we're talking to Elise Sandell, who I met at Portland Opera. She was the associate director on Faust at Portland Opera, and she had also done the production at Chicago Lyric Opera. Elise has spent years, I believe, working as an assistant director at Chicago Lyric Opera. She also has multiple credits under her name as a director. She's going back to Portland in November to direct Traviata and... I think you're coming to the Met next, right, to be an AD on a show. But you haven't always done directing and assistant directing. So how? what was your journey to get to where you are right now? So I went to Barrington High School in Barrington, Illinois. And all I wanted to do while I was there was be an actress. So, you know, I tried that. I didn't get cast in a lot of shows. I got cast in some. I worked with a community theater here in the suburbs of Chicago called the Second Suburb Players. But what I really got interested in pretty quickly was the crew. So I tried all sorts of different aspects of being on the crew. I was props master on a show. I was carpenter on a show. I managed a lot too. And stage managing was a thing that I really had a knack for and found myself doing a lot. I even was an assistant director back in high school. But yeah, but I actually ended up going to uh, Webster University in St. Louis uh, at their conservatory. And there I was pursuing a BFA in stage management. So my background actually really started out in that, and I have a big basis in stage management. That's that's so awesome. How? Yeah. How? So when did you start directing? Was it kind of like a gradual thing? And I mean, I know as an as a stage manager, there's been a couple of shows where they just ask me, "Well, you're already here in your stage managing. Can you help with you know assistant directing and help with this?" And it's just kind of like a smooth, gradual transition. Yeah, it was sort of gradual. I was at the year after I graduated from Webster, I did this fellowship with Opera America. Back then they had a fellowship program where they would take a person who was trying to establish a career in opera and send them to three different companies uh, to sort of be, for lack of a better word, an intern or a slightly glorified intern, as it were. So my fellowship was in stage management, except that you weren't allowed to displace a person from a job that they normally would have hired another person for. So the first show I did at my first assignment at Tulsa Opera was as assistant director on AIDA, because that was the position they had open. They had already hired all of the stage managers and everything. So You know, I did that and it was actually my boss at Tulsa Opera, Amanda Faust, who was the director of production there, who kept encouraging me to get into assistant directing. And other people kept encouraging me and I kept saying, no, I'm a stage manager. That's what I want to (laughs) do. So for many years, you know, I kept on ASMing. I never really stage managed very much in the opera world. And, you know, once I left college, I've been pretty much in the opera world the whole time. And so it was a, a different director named Paula Swazi, who's now the executive stage director at the Met, who encouraged me to get into assistant directing. And so she was the one who sort of got me hired for the first thing that someone paid me as an assistant director on purpose. And then after that, the bug kind of bit me. And as I was in rehearsal, I was kind of doing one or both sometimes. And I just discovered that I was, you know, your brain has to think in a really different way to be a stage manager than it does to be a director. And I found myself so interested in what was going on on stage and in the source material and in the motivation behind everything that it just sort of happened naturally after that. How, so what, what is it that your brain does differently from a stage manager to an assistant director? Is there, I mean, do you have a way of explaining it? Cause I don't even know if I'd be able to explain it. I mean, 
you know, both positions, you have to think ahead right. about what's coming up. Uh, but a stage manager has to think ahead in a whole different way. And their attention is constantly on everything that's off stage that feeds on stage. Oh, good point. Yeah. And I sort of feel like an assistant director, their job is their attention is every their attention is on everything on stage to keep everything on stage moving forward, which of course a stage manager has a hand in that too. I'm not sure if I can explain it. No, I think that's a really awesome way of explaining it because you're so right. When I, I mean, 99% of what I do is stage management, but when I watch the stage, I'm not watching necessarily the interaction of the performers. I'm watching what set pieces are interacting with where they are physically on stage so that we can light them. You know, are, do they, are they touching somebody's face? Do we have to worry about microphones? Do they have a hat on? And uh-huh. you're right. I'm not looking at their interaction or f- what their like motivation is on stage. Mm-hmm. I'm looking at everything that's off stage that's going to affect them. That's mm-hmm. so interesting. I've never thought about it that way. Yeah. Well, and then and I go one step. Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Stacey. I go one step further and I don't pay attention to the actors at all. <laughs> I only pay attention to them if they're in the way of set pieces or if they're uh, not in there, you know, too close to the stage and might fall off or if they're standing underneath a drop that's going to come in. <laughs> well, that's sort of the beauty of theater, you know, that you need all these different people who have their attention on their specific province as it were so that everybody remains safe and everybody's work is at the highest level one yeah. person can't do it all yeah very true it's very very true um it's funny because as an assistant director you know i'm always like how can i make this work what can i do to make things better even as a director oh how can they get on stage faster all of this stuff and sometimes i have to remind myself like okay, once they hit the wing, that is not your job. You have to trust the people whose job it is in the way to do their jobs. Did you find that being an ASM or having training in stage management has helped as the assistant director? Because I could say working with you, me as a stage manager, I feel like you, you totally thought as a stage manager and the way you created paperwork and like, the information that you would provide us as an AD just made all of our lives so much easier because you could speak our language. So do you think that helped a lot or do you think you even use that? Or is it just because it's now so natural to you to think in certain ways that you just kind of know how to communicate with all the people around you? I think I wouldn't be the same kind of director or the same kind of assistant director if, I hadn't had that training. That is definitely for sure. I would say it probably has helped me. It's funny, when I was in college, there was a person in the directing class, and the directing teacher came and saw that person's project and then said, well, as a director, they make a nice stage manager, which was like the biggest possible insult you could possibly say about a director. So like, yeah. I've always carried a little of that baggage. But I mean, at this point, <laughs> I'm old enough that I just let it go. And I'm going to do what I think is best for the show. Yeah. It's funny like, that that's I guess for me, it was more, you were so involved with the devils in Faust. And the devils kind of I want to say they were kind of like the stagehands on stage in a sense. Like they're the ones that made everything happen on stage. You know, they had to deal with the most amount of props and the most amount of movements and stuff. But so I, I feel they that's also just were kind of so, the way I visualed it. But they what? also like were the ones pushing the plot a number of times. Right, exactly. But I just watched Elise as an AD, like create kind of a scene change paperwork for devils. <laughs> Which is kind of why I just think of it as, you know, that in this specific show helping being an ASM because she figured out all the scene changes and on all the movements and all of that stuff just because that's what these people did on the show. But I know it's not like that on every single show. I mean, it'll probably be completely different when you work on Traviata because, you know, it's a completely different show. I think it'll probably be pretty different. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, quite different. <laughs> So then what do you, so what is the biggest difference 
I think you're the first assistant director we've really spoken with. I mean, we spoke with Kara, who's done both. But because you have so much experience as an assistant director and as a director, how would you describe the difference between the two and now like how they interact? Well, multiple layer questions. The difference between the two, how they interact, and then there's so many companies that do not have an assistant director. And so how does it affect your work as a director if you don't have that assistant with you? Ah, multi-layered question. Um, I know that's like, we could probably talk for hours about those three things. Where I am in my directing career, a lot of the places that I work don't have assistant directors. Right. So I find myself often having to be my own assistant. Although a lot of the stage managers that I've worked with have done an incredible job in supporting me because when there's no assistant director, everybody has to step up. The stage manager has to step up. Right. The ASMs have to step up. The director has to step up. Even the singers have to step up a little bit um, to sort of fill those things that that person is doing, which I think is sometimes why assistant directors get sort of a bad rap. Like, oh, they're just the person who takes the notes and writes the blocking. It's no yes. big deal. And exactly. So, you know, I obviously take pretty big offense to that because I work really hard. If somebody's paying me to be on a show, then I'm going to show up and work my took us off to make it the best thing it can be from, you know, everything I can do within the realm of my influence. Um, so, you know, I know a lot of directors that I've supported as an assistant director have appreciated my help. And I think also having directed enough shows makes me a better AD as well, because I understand a little bit what they're going through. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if most directors would admit it, but there's a sort of primal fear. The first time you walk into a rehearsal to start a process and you're faced with these performers and you're wondering if what you have in mind is right for them and if they're going to like it and if everybody's going to agree and if it's going to work and if it's going to be as good as you thought it was when you were sitting at your desk preparing. So. You know, I think it makes me a better AD to understand that a director could be going through that as well. Um, I mean, as a director, I really try to, you know, the next two shows that I'm directing are La Traviata and The Marriage of Figaro, which are two of the most often done operas at all in the repertoire. So... On one hand, there's nothing under the sun that hasn't been done with them. But Mm -hmm. except for us doing that show right there with those people right now. That's the only really originality I can offer. I can set the thing on Mars, but I can guarantee you it's been done before. In fact, there was a Traviata that was set on the moon pretty recently in France. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not even kidding. Like with astronaut suits and spaceships and all. Oh, Um, no, I know which one you're talking about. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah, no, I remember seeing pictures and everybody just being like, well, it looks pretty, but we don't really get the point of it. Um, so like for me, I just try to really, when I sit down and hear the opera, hear it for the first time and read and comprehend the text as if it's for the first time. So, and actually both of these operas are operas I've directed before too, not on the same set, not with the same cast, but, you know, I really don't want to show up and just provide a regurgitation of what I did with a different cast at a different time on a different stage. However, of course, you learn things about a piece by going through it and by living with it. So I don't want to discount those things I learned either. So it's a really hard edge to ride on that kind of thing because in opera, we do the same pieces over and over and over and over again, even more than in theater. It's really a hard problem to uh, solve. I mean, I know in theater, like they do do pieces over again, but it's, there's just more of them. (laughs) Exactly. And I feel like it's a little bit easier to, well, not easier to change, but yeah, to me, it's just, so different like you said a Traviata and a Figaro you know 
it's probably each of those pieces is probably being performed at 20 different companies this month alone. Yeah. So exactly. And I think the the do you ever think about the audience as well? Because I feel like well, I, I ran into this problem at the last company that or the company that I was at for full time is that when we would try to change a traditional piece or make it a little bit more modern or change the clothing, we had a huge kind of uproar in the community because they the community was so used to doing something in a traditional way. So that was something that we, I mean, we struggled with, but we were in a, you know, a uh, more rural upstate New York town. Yeah. But well, you said the same thing. The directors. You said the same thing about Faust, that Chicago uh, didn't, they didn't really like it as much because it's more traditional, whereas Portland received it no, better more, because. More, more uh, not traditional because. Yeah, it, they were used we to more traditional work. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it wasn't as well-reviewed or as well-received sort of by the press and everything in Chicago. Although we found that people who weren't as familiar with the opera loved it just fine. Exactly. Because they didn't come in with all these preconceived notions of what Faust is supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. And I think opera companies, especially now where the economy is so tight for nonprofits, they really have to... Um, dance on that line of meeting audience expectations and making them satisfy customers, but also pushing them out of their comfort zone so that they can, you know, experience things anew. I mean, what's the whole point? Why do we do, why do we make art? It's to sort of understand the human condition and shed light onto it. Um, And so, if we're not doing that in new ways and shedding new lights onto it, there's a little bit of what's the point. So. Right. Like, well, like you said, just regurgitating old ideas, which. Yeah. Kind of gets boring after a while. I mean, and there's a difference between regurgitation and rediscovery too, depending on how you are when you're working with uh, a group of performers um, and, and a design team for that matter as well. So there's a little bit of both. I mean, a lot of times a company will give you a sense of what kind of production they're looking for and how it's going to fit into their season. Um, So that really the, I already have a sense that both of the upcoming productions that I'm directing, they expect to sort of quote, air quote, traditional production. So... Right. I realize that I'm sort of expected to at least make sure that people have pretty clothes to look at. And that's right. <laughs> that said, it doesn't make the marriage of Figaro any less body, you know? I mean, <laughs> how do you direct the marriage of Figaro now in sort of this time of hashtag me too? You can't ignore that now because actually that's sort of the basis of what the marriage of Figaro is about. And how do you address that? And how do you address that and still sort of meet what the libretto and the music is asking for in the happy ending? The happy ending. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. You got to make it all like, oh, and everything's perfect at the end. And you're like, well, no, but sure. Yeah, exactly. So how do you solve those problems? Does it become a thing about forgiveness then? And I'm also one of those people, I mean, I'll spend a lot of time preparing and sort of come up with ideas for the show, but I would much rather find it with the cast in the rehearsal room. So I expect them to come in with their own opinions. And at the very least, I'm going to listen to them. And I'm probably going to incorporate them because I just find that everybody gives a more genuine from the heart performance if they are contributing to it instead of just being puppets, you know? So what are some ways that you prepare then for a production? I mean, I study real hard to know the piece really well. I'm a big fan of source material. So I love reading the original play or novel that an opera is built on. I love looking at other parts of the culture at the time when the thing was first performed, when it premiered, or 
when it's set as well, or both and how that affects it. Because, you know, if you sometimes you can understand something about what people were thinking and what they were looking at by looking at their paintings from that time, or looking at a different play Mm -hmm. from that time, or reading about how people lived in that time. So like with Traviata, the whole, they call it the demimonde, the half world of, um, how a courtesan lived is uh, there's so much to read about that. And there, you know, the woman that the character Violetta is based on is uh, was named Marie Duplessis. And so you can read all about who is a real person. So you can read all about her and what she was going through. And then there were all these other famous courtesans that you can read about too. So it's really fascinating research that I love to, have a sense of that because it can feed everyone's performance. I like to think of it as feeding a performance. So you, even if someone, you know, last year I directed Lucci the Lammermoor, even if someone doesn't have time to read Sir Walter Scott's very long novel, Lucy of Lammermoor, I can read it and I can pick out the passages that I think are going to feed a person's performance. That's that so awesome. Really, uh, so you do all the research on the background and stuff. How much were you trained in music and how much do you take the music into consideration on preparing for a piece? I don't have a lot of music training. I played the piano when I was sort of in late elementary and middle school for about three years. Um, and so then I could pick out notes on a piano and... <laughs> Exactly. Like I can kind of, I, you know, I can read music and, you know, I always joke in rehearsal, oh, I'm tone deaf and I have no sense of rhythm. I don't, that's not actually true. That's a little bit of an exaggeration, but (laughs) I, you know, I had to take fundamentals of musicianship in college. It was part of the stage management degree that I was following. So I had that, but of course the music is, is, the thing you can't not consider it while you're doing an opera. So I actually like part of the preparation I do when I'm learning an opera is I sing the whole thing. Yes. Yeah, I get to that point too. And so, I actually got in trouble for it in Portland, but <laughs> well, good it job. doesn't it doesn't sound good at all. So I have to find a place to do it where no one can hear me. <laughs> but um All of a sudden, even if I can't make it sound like these professional opera singers who have decades of training in language and musicology and pedagogy and all of these other aspects of music, even if I can't make it sound like that, I can sort of feel what it feels like to utter the text. And Mm -hmm. so that can kind of change how you feel the music in your body and in your brain and everything. Um, It's funny though, sometimes I'll be assistant directing a show and I know what the music is. I know what the singers sound like. I know what the design is. I know what the lighting's gonna look like. I know what all of that stuff is. And then we'll be in a rehearsal late in the process like orchestra dress or something. And all of a sudden I'll just sit back and go, whoa, I didn't know it was going to look like that. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, that's kind of amazing what you could do. Yeah, because it's sort of like once you have the sum of all of those things together, it makes a really big difference. It's always the sum of all the aspects that is the thing that impacts the audience the most. So I love those moments. And I think often because we are kind of so individualized in theater that I know I I often don't step back and look at the bigger picture because I'm so focused on like what what I need to do at that moment or what my part of the the puzzle is. Yeah. So I think it's especially for you being at uh and I don't I think it's pretty common but the, the assistant director stays around through the entire production mm-hmm. um through closing night because they're kind of there to make sure that things continue to run but you get to sit in the audience every night and watch it and so that's I mean nobody else in the production ever gets to do that I think that's you can a, really learn a lot from that right exactly it's yeah something I've never experienced I think that's so wonderful what no 
I had a question and then I wrote it down and then my question now doesn't make sense to me. Oh, <laughs> so Stacey asked you about music. What about language? Because so many operas, at least traditional operas, are not in our native tongue. So do you have training in foreign language? Because I swear you knew like every French word in that opera. I'm pretty sure Elise knew every word more than any of the performers did. And she would just like start speaking the words and the rest of us had to try to catch up and figure out where we were in the show. <laughs> so do you have training in language or did, is that something that you've just picked up as you work on the piece? You know, I am a little bit of a language geek, which is part of why opera was a good fit. I remember yeah. in high school, somebody said, oh, you like theater, you should do opera because you're good at French and Spanish. And I was like, no, opera, that's dumb. And of course... <laughs> Fast forward to 24 years later or whatever. Um, and so, this is what your career has become. <laughs> exactly. So I was um, I was pretty good at Spanish when I was in middle school. And they put me in this accelerated program where you actually got college credit by the time you were a senior. Uh -huh. um, and I got really interested in French. My grandma was born in France. So she's super French. So there was a little <laughs> bit of interest from it in that. So they let me skip gym class to take French in high school. Not fair. And then I, I don't want to go to gym <laughs> class. <laughs> I hated language, so it would not have been good for me. But still. <laughs> but I, you know, so I got really into it and I loved French. So, you know, those were fine. I went to theater school, didn't really use the languages that much because I spent most of my college years working at Opera Theater St. Louis that does everything in English. And oh. then it started to become an asset. And I was still pretty awful at Italian. And there kind of came this point where a conductor looked at me and said, you've got to work on this. So I actually... <laughs> Like, decided to just work on it myself. So I got a book with some CDs, and I just started studying. And because it's a Romance language like Spanish and French, it started to come fairly easily. Now I can't really speak Spanish, and if I try to, Italian just comes out. Um, <laughs> they're, but, they're pretty similar. So there are so many, like, resources for learning language nowadays that you can really just say, oh, I'm doing an opera in Russian. I'm going to... Pull that Go course up it. on Duolingo and do it for 10 minutes a day. And then, you know, or if it's a language you're already better at, you can start listening to podcasts on the bus or the subway or whatever. And then, like, that's a different aspect than doing it on Duolingo or Rosetta Stone. So if I know a, langu if I know a language is coming up, then I'll try and, like, get myself back into it. With Italian and French now, it comes pretty easily. If I had to go to France to work, I would have to work on that so that I could have conversations. But like knowing how to spell and pronounce and define all the words, and then you just look up the words you don't know. Um, I mean, back before Google Translate, I'm not sure what I did. I actually have still <laughs> like dictionaries for maybe seven languages on my bookshelf and everything. But I still find I often use Google Translate because you can translate a whole phrase so you get the context in a whole different way. Yeah. That's that's so interesting. I mean, it's, I 100% agree with you. And I notice the more that I do non-English operas, because what I love are like the newer modern pieces and they're almost always done in English. But doing more of the Fausts and Traviatas, I'm not good at it. I'm good at German, and there's very few German operas I've actually done. Um, and the two times I've done flute, they've translated it to English, which was not beneficial for my language skills. But <laughs> even as a stage manager, I try to learn languages a little bit. But I, you're motivating me to uh, put Duolingo back on my phone and to work on my French because the French is the hardest for me. Italian, I could follow really well. I could usually speak it a little bit. I at least know how to uh, pronounce the words. But French is it's very difficult. There's a lot of letters in French. You can sound out Italian a little more easily than you can it's, French. Yeah, it's, exactly. And it's and even though I read music really well, it's easier for me to follow the Italian or to follow... German, obviously, than it is to follow French. And um, I just have noticed that both times that I worked on Faust, it's, I think I need to put French on my phone and, and start practicing that, even though I don't have any French operas coming up. But 
Nah, so, not helpful. Practice early. But I also yeah. think that uh, Cindy and I grew up in Southern California, and Spanish is everywhere. And I feel like the uh-huh. Italian language is fairly close to the Spanish language in the way that you can pronounce some of the words or the spelling of them. So I've only yeah. done a couple operas, but I under I can follow the Italian better just because it's closer to to Spanish. I've I've done like a whole five operas. <laughs> Uh, I have a question about, um, you said you were doing uh, Entraviata, and I think you said you're doing that at Portland Opera. Where are you doing the Marriage of Figaro at? Uh, Florida Grand Opera in Miami. Did you you oh, travel no. all over the place like Cindy? I, I feel like everybody in opera travels. It's very rare that opera peoples are in one location. There's just True. not enough opera in any one town, for the most part, to hold a person there. I mean, to be honest, uh, I'm actually leaving the business after that marriage of Figaro at Florida Grand Opera. And part of the reason is that I just simply don't want to travel anymore. And there's not enough opera to hold me here in Chicago anymore. So I am going to be trying to find a new career to do. So podcast listeners, if you have a good idea for a good job for me in Chicago, (laughs) please contact the podcast producers. Um, (laughs) But uh, yeah, the traveling is really hard. And it's in a way, it's kind of fun because I've gotten to know all these different cities that I love so much. Um, like, I've spent a lot of time in Houston. I lived in Tulsa for a while. My um, gig at Portland Opera is why I moved to Portland and I lived there for three years before I moved back to Chicago. Um, you know, so many different cities I've gotten to live in. Boston, Salt Lake City, Philadelphia, Denver. Um, and that's a really beautiful thing to get to do. And it's also really beautiful to see people opera is sort of a small family. So you see all these different people again and again. And so it's mm-hmm. sort of like coming home because you get to see people you maybe haven't seen in five years. And it's like, you can kind of pick up in your rapport with them uh, mm-hmm. or even friendship, depending on how close you are with the person. Like, nothing has changed and that's a really beautiful thing and a thing that I'll miss but the traveling gets really hard and to be perfectly honest I don't know how people do it where they spend more time than I ever spent in a year on the road some some singers if you're successful and you're working consistently you're spending 10 months on the road or nine months on the road um and last year I was on like two or three I was on the road for over nine months at the end of last year. Wow. Yeah. Well, I'm friends with, I'm friends with uh, Craig Coclo and he's uh, a rising opera singer and he has a a wife and three kids now and they've been married since college and that's where I met him and they don't have a house and they haven't had a house in years because they just travel wherever Craig goes so they stay yeah. in Airbnbs, they stay at hotels, they stay at friends' houses, and they have traveled the world. And occasionally they'll stop back by Southern California where they grew up and lived, but they're only here for like maybe a, one, a month or so uh, mm-hmm. because he's doing a show in LA Opera or something. But yeah, it just it's amazing to me that, I mean, it's great, those kids' education on every country and whatever they've been to but also they just don't have a home thing i mean she uh when she had her last kid i think he was born and maybe the next day craig took off to a different country and two weeks later as a newborn and a newborn you know a mom her and three kids and i think her mother her mother-in-law took off to a new country for a couple months Mm -hmm. wow that's that's a lot of dedication to drag a family around in the entire world to follow this career. Yeah. And then a lot of times if the kids, as they grow older, if they are traveling with you, and I know a lot of families that are really committed to being together, no matter what, what it means is you're educating your children as well. It's up to you to homeschool your kids exactly, or mm-hmm. find school to 
for them to go to if, while you're on a certain gig in a given city um, or something like that. So it becomes a whole, the logistics of that are another whole thing to consider. And then it's like, do you just keep doing that while they're in high school or do you settle down a little bit? And some of it is just personal taste. Some people love it and will do it forever. And some people decide, well, I'm only going to take this many gigs and then you deal with the pay cut. But then, or some people can't get enough gigs. So they have a side gig for when they're at home. You know, there are all different ways of navigating through it. I'm just choosing to navigate out at least for a while. Yeah. See if you can live without theater and opera for a while. Yeah, I'll probably... It'll probably be ridiculous because a week later I'll be caught in a rehearsal room rehearsing with some opera singer, but we'll see how it goes. I'm going to give it my best try. <laughs> Elise is calling this her farewell tour. I am. It's my farewell tour. So if you see, if you search hashtag farewell tour on Facebook, you'll probably find me. <laughs> Got it. I'm going to add um, that to my notes. Well, so earlier we, you were talking about well, you mentioned a little bit about how a, a company kind of informs how you're going to work on a show based on like what their season or what they want. And you mentioned how Traviata and, and Figaro are both, in a sense, traditional because of the way that it fits in this these company seasons. So how is it for you as a director or an assistant director? Well, what's the difference between working on like a, a, a brand new piece versus a piece with the sets and costumes that are already given to you. Cause I can't remember Traviata if you're, you're create you and Christine are creating costumes for that piece. Right. So what mm -hmm. is the difference as opposed to like showing up to a company that says, these are all your costumes. This is your set. This is like, these are all of the things that you have to work with versus create something new. Um, I mean, in a way, it takes the pressure off a little bit because then your job is to just make it work. And mm -hmm. the thing is, is that as an opera director, because so often we're doing established pieces, mm -hmm. your job is to make it work too. Like I know sometimes every once in a while they'll have a director from theater world come into opera and they'll say, well, can't we just add some scene change music? And it's like, no, this is a through composed piece. We can't really do that. <laughs> um, it's not like My Fair Lady where you can say, okay, we're going to re repeat this scene change music until we're done, you know? Um, yeah. So uh, like, that's a thing that people sort of have to figure out how to make it work. Not that we don't sometimes take cuts, but we very rarely add music and especially to establish well-known pieces. So always you're already dealing with this thing where you have to make it work within constraints that you might not if you're doing a Shakespeare play or something, where as a director, you get to set the pace of it in a way that you don't get to set the pace of it in an opera, because you have to communicate and collaborate with the conductor who is in charge of the pace of it. And the composer has a big voice in the pace of it. Um, so like with a design that's already established, it's another aspect of like, sort of making it all work together, which doesn't mean that sometimes, like when I did Traviata at Central City Opera, the set designer was kind enough to allow it, um, and the line designer was kind enough to help me. We completely recapitulated the set, so we used what they already had, but we arranged it in completely different ways on the stage. So oh, that's if awesome. you get their production from 2007 that was directed by a different director and the production from 2015 that was directed by me, they look pretty different. And we also had a sort of, quote, costume supervisor. Really, she was an incredible designer named Bettina Beerley who allowed us to, who made it so that we could recapitulate the costume design too. And the original designer was kind enough to allow it to happen so that, you know, we were allowed to sort of make it work for what my vision of the show was with that. These two sets that I'm working okay. with uh, are really designed to work in a specific way. So I'm going to have to build a show that works with them. Um, 
with a new show, I mean, you know, the sky's the limit in a way. Mm -hmm. As the director, one of my weaknesses is that I take the text pretty literally. So this production, Faust, that we just worked on in Portland Opera, there are so many places where the text is in a way completely not acknowledged in a literal way at all. And Mm -hmm. some people might have a big beef with that. And some people might, now for me, I'm like, oh, of course. Why do we need a holy water fountain on the stage for Seabell to sing that one line? Like, you know, so it's a completely those sort of experiences working with that kind of uh, creative team, like Kevin Newberry and his designers and John Frame, it sort of stretches my brain in ways to maybe free me from being too literal with the text and everything. Um, So that's pretty nice. I haven't gotten to design a whole main stage opera. I've done design exercises for contests and I've done lots of little operas, but I've never gotten to do like a big three hour main stage opera. So I don't know how it would turn out. I, in a way, am good at quote unquote traditional. So if a company likes what I'm doing with it and I deliver something that the singers feel great about their performances and the audience enjoys, then I'm going to do that. Um, you really just have to follow your instincts no matter what you're doing. Right. Like yeah. anything in this business. I love though that you could take a set when, when it's possible and just kind of rearrange it. So you're, you're not really spending the million, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars it would take to build a new set, but you could still make it new and interesting. <laughs> It's I've never thought cool about doing that before. That that mm-hmm. set can do that because most sets are built a certain way that not all sides are completely finished or it only goes together this one way or if you have a staircase, yeah. it has to go up this way. Otherwise, it doesn't reach a platform. Yeah, 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 exactly. I mean, this one was built out of, um, because the Central City stage is really small, so they do this a lot there, out of like, I can't remember, maybe eight periactoi. So it was easy to move the periactoi to different locations, and then you're able to, quote, move a wall, which is not a thing that you can do on just any set. Yeah. That's definitely true. Yeah, that's that's really really cool that they do that. So you mentioned... You mentioned uh, the collaborative process, and we keep talking about, you know, working with singers and working with designers, but we've never actually talked about what is it like to work with a conductor? Because you're right, in the opera world, that conductor is, is I mean, I kind of want to say God, but he is the one that sets the pace of the show and is there for all performances. So what is the relationship like as a director to work with a conductor? It depends on the conductor. It depends on the company. Mm-hmm. Some places the conductor doesn't spend a lot of time in rehearsal or doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot to say. In some places they really have a lot to say. So, you know, I've worked with conductors that have said like the original novel, we don't care about that. We're doing this. And, you know, for me, I, you know, I just have to kind of smile and nod and keep going about my business when that happens. <laughs> Sometimes there are conductors that have feelings about the text and what it means that will then change how I stage a scene. So right. when that happens and when everybody's sort of working together to help the singer craft their performance and it's sort of all together, you know, those are the times that feel really exciting and really awesome in a rehearsal room um there's some conductors who just sit back and beat time until it's time with the orchestra and then all of a sudden you find they've been actually supporting you the whole time um Mm -hmm. there are some that will put their fists down about things being a certain way and you know i just want to try and honor whatever someone's point of view is as as an artist and if it's completely ridiculous, then smile and nod and keep going about my business. So, (laughs) you know, it really depends. Some conductors are fascinated by the piece and want to talk about the text and the backstory and every other little thing. And some don't. So you just have to be ready for everything, I guess. (laughs) Right. We had this conversation uh, a while ago. We we talked to, uh, Stacey was one of your guys at PVPA, who's a, a pianist, but also a conductor, oh, Sean Bart. but in music. Yeah. 
Sean Bart, but in musicals, and we are talking about the difference a conductor in opera is versus like a, a music director or a conductor in, in musical theater and just how it's so important in the opera world and how conductors always get bows in the opera world and, you know, they get a curtain call and, you know, it's all kind of, there's such an important part and how in musical theater, they're totally not. Sometimes they're not, not even visible. It, yeah, exactly. That's what we were talking about. You know, you're, you're backstage. You don't get a curtain call. You don't come out and get a bow at intermission. You're not as prestigious. You don't get front page listings. You're not written up in, <clears throat> in reviews. Whereas in opera, they're just, they're the ones that are there. You know, you list the conductor, you list the director. And it's, it's so different. And we were trying to figure out how that came about. Because in theory, musical theater came from the opera world. You know, th- that's where the transition came from. So. Yeah, that's never just, made sense to me because to me, whether you're doing a musical or an opera, the music director's contribution key. is, you know, priceless. Yeah. And you Absolutely. can't you can't ignore that. So yeah, that's a that's a thing that's never really made sense to me. Because in either case, no matter what, as the director and really as an assistant director too your job is to be hands off at a certain point as the process goes on and you go further and further into tech, you're taking steps further and further back because Mm -hmm. you don't get to be in control. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, as an assistant director, I can help make substitutions or help guide an understudy through performance or something like that. But, or, you know, point out something that's going a bit awry, but really I'll, all I can, you're, you're without control at a certain point. I always joke that if you look up director in the dictionary, it's the definition says person who feels responsible for everything that has control over virtually nothing. (laughs) Yeah. Especially once you get to opening night, you're like, I can't do anything at this point, but the music director and conductor can, because they are the one that is moving the piece forward. They could feed lines to the performers. They could help an orchestra member they can you know stretch out a note if if scenery is taking too long to change you know like they're so integral to the to the to the actual performance of it as well as the entire process but they're flying an airplane I've already taken the parachute out (laughs) exactly (laughs) I just wish I knew where that came from because it's just so interesting to me and now that I've been in the opera world for 10 plus years you know when I go back to musical theater it's it's so different but I also remember when I first really started in opera, my experience was in musical theater and in drama. And so to then as a stage manager, kind of switch my mind to to communicate with the director or with the, the conductor, you know, it, uh, in theater, you're trained to always go to the direct, well, an example, go to the director and let them know when break is or when we're back from break or ask the director if they have anything or ask the director if they have any notes at the end of rehearsal. And so to switch to opera, and you now have to take both of them into consideration. And oftentimes, especially once you get to the stage, it's all about the conductor at that point. Like, once we get to orchestra rehearsals, you don't really ask the director if they have notes, because it's not their time anymore. It's, you know, conductor's time. Yeah. So it's just an, so it's such an interesting process to me. Yeah. Yeah, plus you have to find them to start the show. Directors aren't there when you start a show. Constantly having to chase down the conductor and be like, um, are you ready to start? Can you please go in the pit? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. All the time. But I think conductors are also at companies, and, and at least you might have more experience with this than I do or, or more knowledge, but I've worked at a number of companies where the conductor is the resident conductor or the artistic director, or they have a lot more to say in the actual, like, season overall view of the show which you rarely rarely ever find in my case directors that are employed full-time by that company yeah yeah it's chris metaliano and at portland opera is uh a little bit of an anomaly um yeah i think he's the only one i've met like that that he's able to still direct shows and serve as the general director there are a lot of 
um, channel directors who have been stage directors, but you don't find them directing as much as Chris does, which is pretty fascinating to me, and I enjoy it. Um, Opera Theater St. Louis is another example. James Robinson is the artistic director there. Um, oh, right. And, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, there's different ways of doing it. I Boy, running a company sure looks like a hard job. I don't know if I could do that. Um, <laughs> yeah, very true. <laughs> <laughs> props to everybody who runs an opera company that's what i would say or a theater company congratulations right. to you <laughs> i know jamie um down at oh my gosh north carolina piedmont opera uh him and i will joke sometimes and he was like people told me not to run a company and i thought how hard could it be and he was like cindy listen to me do not ever do this <laughs> he was uh-huh. like, it's so difficult yeah. But at the same time, he's also their resident conductor and he conducts every single one of their shows, you know, and so it's just complete double duty. But it's at the same time great to have that person at ha- such a high level in the rehearsal room with you on a daily basis because they can help make things happen. You know, that is not necessarily the case if you just have two um, outside people in yeah. the rehearsal room and not somebody who's a direct representative of the company. Yeah. Which is also yeah. just, you know, more relationships that you have to deal with and more, I don't want to say politics because that's such a negative ton- connotation, you know, but it's just a different, a different feeling, I guess, in the rehearsal room, at least for me and the way that um, you can kind of make things work. Yeah. Yeah. Which I guess, I mean, as a stage manager, for me, so much of it is about politics and the way you control the rehearsal room or the way that you communicate with people, but... I mean, really, directors, conductors, and stage managers all have one thing in common, which is that they have to kind of manipulate everybody around yes. them to get the job done to follow a certain vision. So yeah, you can ask yeah. people to do things all day long, but really, it's entirely up to them whether they push the button or take the cue or... <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I say that so... I mean, I said this yesterday. I was like, I could... I could you know, do whatever I want to try to force somebody to do something, but there, I physically cannot make somebody do something they don't want to do. You know, I have all of these tools at my disposal to try to convince them to do it, to encourage them to do it, to manipulate them to do it, but I can't physically get them to do it. You can't actually do it for them. Yeah, exactly. And I think it's why I'm so appreciative of crews and of designers and especially very good crews, you know, because I could, I think I said this in, in Portland, I could call the perfect show and it could be a complete disaster if the people that I'm calling the cues to don't actually take those cues. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like I can't do anything about it if the lighting design or if the the whiteboard operator doesn't press a button when I tell them to press a button or I could call the scrim coming out. And if they do it too fast or too slow or completely just don't do it at all, you know, that's on me. So I'm so appreciative of people who do what, what, I can get them to do. <laughs> yeah, and they know job. what they're doing as well. Yes, yes. Yeah, in Portland especially, I would, you know, I joked with Marty and all the guys on fly all the time. We had this whole rehearsal. Um, what was it? End of Act 3? I think we did like 10 times about how fast yeah. we wanted the, the, uh, the scrim to come in because oh, there were so many cues with that. And finally, Marty gets on headset and he was like Cindy leave your mic on so we could hear the music if we could hear the music we could feel it and we could get the scrim to land when you want the music to land and it was just amazing to me because so many crew people you know don't they're not paying attention to the music they're not paying attention to all that stuff they're just doing what they're told and so to have these guys backstage being like let us feel the music with you was you know so heartwarming I felt so loved then but it works because then they (laughs) heard it and I think they actually wanted to call that, what was it, romantic slow or something? But yeah. <laughs> uh, it actually worked at that point. But, you know. It yeah. totally worked. Yeah, that was uh, that was an example of someone who knows what they're doing. If you give them the tools to do it, then they're going to make it awesome. Yeah. That's why I love working in opera, I guess. Well, everyone, I mean, those guys, together. those guys weren't just stayed, like opera guys. They were just really good well, crew yeah, guys. That's true. They were just really good at their job. That's very true. No, I guess I meant working in opera because there's so many different parts, you know, which I guess you have in all all shows, but you have a lot more flies, I think, in opera than you do in straight shows. 
Uh, I don't know. Have you Depends done Seen on the in show. the Rain? Yeah, that's true. There was I that's ran out true. of fly space for that one. <laughs> well, I think I, I only have one more question, Stacey. I don't know how you feel, um, but I know we're probably getting close to an hour. Yep, you've been I'm ignoring, ignoring all of Kai's text. Kai's text. Yes, we are. So the last <laughs> question, and I I don't remember if I warned you for this, which is kind of normal for me right now. But because this is Twins Talk Theater. Do you have any twin stories? Have you ever worked with twins or did you grow up with twins or uh, really just anything? We just like to ask people about twins because they're so funny. Um, We're kind of weird. Okay. Well, you've heard about the most famous twin stage directors in the opera business, right? Christopher and David Alden. No. Yeah. So they are twins, identical twins. Although they don't look exactly, they're, close to identical if they're not actually identical um they are both opera directors they're both really well established really well i mean it depends on your perspective they directed all the biggest companies all around the country i've never worked with david but i worked with christopher actually at portland opera on the flying dutchman and oh. i think they have family in Oregon or something. So I got to go to this dinner with, or brunch or something with, um, David came into town and all this family got together and they had all these pictures of these little guys like growing up and as babies and everything. (laughs) So I always joke that I've seen Christopher Alden in diapers now. Um, (laughs) I'm sure he appreciates uh, that. So it's funny because they're both sort of, um, they're really both innovative directors. I think their styles are ever so slightly different, but I haven't really seen a David Alden show live to give you a really good view of that. Um, they're both uh, interesting personalities to deal with. Um, so, like, that's what I always think of when I think of twins. Um But uh, there's also some opera singers that I know. If you know um, Joshua and Joseph Dennis. Joshua Dennis is married to a stage manager, Ashley. I have. I worked with Joshua and I keep talking to him and I'm like, I really want you on the podcast, but we haven't been able to like get the schedules together. But I don't know Joseph. I just, I worked with Joshua on um, a cozy once. So he's on our list. We got to get him on the podcast. Well, you know, it's funny because I was at Santa Fe Opera in 2013 and, you mm-hmm. know, I'm starting to make like a scene breakdown for the show. We were doing Donna DeLago and I'm looking through the list of the chorus and everything. And I wrote to a person in the rehearsal department and I said, hey, I think there might be like a mistake here because you have one person with the same last names that you have two people with the same last names and their names are really close. I think they're the same person, Joshua and (laughs) Joseph. And he was like, Nope, they are in fact brothers. They are in fact twins. And (laughs) and that same year, actually both David Blaylock and Jonathan Blaylock, who are not Uh their brothers were also at Santa Fe. So it was sort of like a family affair. It was just pretty funny. I, I also know, um, Jonathan Blaylock. I worked, um, not Figaro, Barbara Seville. He was our count in Barbara, but I don't know. I've never met his brother, but mm-hmm. uh, he's also on the list. Who, who I think Jonathan's now at Saratoga Opera, Opera Saratoga. But uh, Could yeah, be. I don't, I don't know David at all. But Could be well, those are the twins that I can think of off the top of my head. I'm sure there are more. <laughs> I've already looked I up. Well, David. I'm gonna go look up these directors because I don't. I've not. I mean. Because I do d- weird pieces. I, I I feel like I don't know very many people in the opera world. Yeah, but. yeah. Look up the Aldens because actually you'll learn a lot. And they're both good at what they do, um, even if they're not always the easiest to support. Um, they're both really good at what they do. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm big admirers of their work. That's awesome. I'll do that. I've well, already looked Thank you up. so much for joining us and for... Uh, getting our schedules to work together, which I know is always difficult, but it's been awesome talking to you and catching up with you. Yay. Yay. We're definitely going to post all kinds of things about all these companies you've talked about. And I think uh, my main post is going to say definition of director. Let me make sure I got this right. 
Person who feels responsible for everything, but has no control over anything. Has control over virtually nothing. Perfect. That That's going to be like the main thing. I, that's my favorite definition of director ever. Yay. <laughs> Daisy, you're so weird. Okay. <laughs> Thank uh, you also, so much, we... Elise. I hope to talk to you. And let me know when you're, when you're in New York City and we'll come hang out. Definitely. I would love it. Yay. Or when Cindy goes Yay, to Chicago thanks. after your retirement tour. Awesome. Or yeah, that's what you should talk about oh, is well. Elise's farewell tour. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wait, let me move that towards the top. Thanks. I said farewell yeah. tour. Hashtag farewell tour. Um, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. 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 Thank you for listening to today's podcast. For more, visit our website at twinstalktheater.podbean.com and subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. You can also interact with us on Facebook or Instagram at Twinstalk Theater. Title music, Dance Macabre, is provided by Kevin McLeod of incomtech.com under Creative Commons License 3.0.